Hey art lovers, this is Jay Douglas Asher the first, the producer of We Eat Art, and one of the guys who runs Mnemonic Recordings. Thanks so much to everyone who's donated to our Patreon. We've got a great episode on Francis Bacon up for our members. We sent out some stickers made by host John Mejias, and we have a bunch more great stuff on the way. Your donations are so very helpful. We can't do it without you, and I am really, really not lying about that. Hey, on this episode... Hey, you jumped right in. I like it. <laughs> um, you guys, uh, we haven't begun yet, right? No. This is John Mejias in New York City. And this is Zach Smith in Los Angeles. We're all over the world for We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... That zone of uncertainty, I don't think it ever goes away, really, for any artist. Nothing is either ever really done, and nothing is either ever really like the way you want it. Everything that you see is a person just doing the best they can with the means that they have. It keeps things exciting, and it makes you, you know, want to rise to the occasion and not lazy and predictable. There's also a degree of confidence within that umbrella of uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm okay with it. This week we have Gary Pixali in Toronto talking about all those companies had a logo in the form of a cartoon character. It didn't matter what kind of company it was, what they were selling. And we know like the big ones, like the oil companies and stuff, but everybody practically did it. And this was at a time before we went to the moon. So there was kind of like a hope about the future, an idealism, you know, coupled with a degree of naivety about who we are as people. And I think corporations weren't as bad as they are now and maybe shared some of that hope about things. You know, I always did want to kind of hold on to that. Maybe that's my own nostalgia. But I think the reason why maybe people liked it or art directors even collectors is because I think we all have that thing in us where we do long for, could call it simpler times, or maybe like something that's kind of familiar or something that reminds us of our youth or innocence before things got really screwed up in the world like they are today. All right. So Gary, the way we usually start these things off is we start at the beginning when you're a baby. You might not remember any of this stuff, but it probably someone told you how it started. <laughs> so where are you from? How did that begin? I'm originally uh, from India. I was born there. When I was a year old, my family moved to Canada and my father knew how to draw and paint. And so I grew up being influenced by him and, and having him and in a way uh, teach me and encourage me. When I was about like, I guess like eight, nine years old, he enrolled me in a um, community center art classes and I did that in the summertime and that was really great that helped a lot was he a professional or was he just like someone who was it was like a hobby person who was like yeah my son's gonna learn it exactly this. yeah he, he was a hobbyist he wanted to be an artist but just didn't pursue it you know because he thought you know he should get a safe job so I think that's why he was really happy that I did it because I was kind of living the dream that he wanted for himself oh that's cool was your mom, was she working or was she home? Yeah, she was working at the post office. Real avid supporter as well. When I was a small child, you were asking me uh, earlier about uh, uh, memories. Uh, what I do remember is that I would draw pictures at home and, and she would laugh all the time. So I loved that. I loved making her laugh. And then I went to school and the teachers wouldn't laugh. They'd 
tell me to stop doodling and to pay attention <laughs> and, to, and to stop drawing. So I had a little bit of confusion there. I'm like, wait a second, at home, this stuff is cool, but in the school system, it's not. Did the other kids like them? Did they like look at the pictures and like be like, oh, draw, draw this? Oh, yeah. The other kids were great. The other kids you know, would ask me to draw stuff. And sometimes it worked in my favor when it came to uh, – Getting the favor of like pretty girls or fending off bullies, that kind of thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> what do pretty girls like you to draw? What do they like to see? I remember there was a girl named Jackie, and she asked me to draw, of all things, a, a picture of um, Liberace. She thought Liberace. Typical. Was, yeah, she thought Liberace was great, so I, I drew a picture of Liberace. I, 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 okay, I can, I can, you know, I think I can pull this off somewhat. And she was impressed by that. Nice. And then bullies the same thing, like somebody's going to punch you and you just hold up a picture of Liberace and it's like a vampire with a cross. It, it, it was the times, I guess. I, I don't know. It, it, pictures of Liberace worked. Superheroes also worked. Superheroes, always been a universal thing. Uh, cartoon characters, that kind of stuff. Then I started drawing characters from the world of the Fleischer brothers, like Benny oh. and, and things like that. That had more of an esoteric appeal amongst the students. Those weren't Ninja well, okay, Turtles, though. So this would have been like the 70s or 80s? No, they weren't Ninja Turtles. This was like, we're talking like maybe like grade 9, so I guess I was like 14. Okay, so people would have looked at those and been like, okay, this is weird. Like, if you're drawing, was that Betty Boop and like Popeye? Like Yeah, exactly. Coco? Like it, Exactly. It was like, oh yeah, you know, I know that stuff or I've seen it, but it, but it did uh, garner the same kind of adulation as Liberace. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. Okay, so you were in Tor in Toronto in 1970-something, Liberace. This is like a, a big subculture yeah. of Liberace fans. <laughs> he was on The Muppet Show once, and he was great. Should we see that episode oh, of The Muppet right. Show? Yes. It was real serious. He played for like five minutes, just like played that piano, and the Muppets just like gasped at him. He was pretty good, yeah. Liberace, everybody! Yeah. <laughs> As a child, I think I, I was convinced, if not me, my friends were convinced he was the greatest pianist in the world in the history of the piano. <laughs> yeah, I think I thought that too. I thought that too. He was with the Muppets. I never thought about who was a good pianist when I was that age at all. It never occurred to me. But now we know. It sounds like all of this went smoothly. Your dad was like, I'm going to sign you up for art classes. You start drawing, your parents like them, teachers not so much, but all the bullies and hot girls were fine with it. And then you just smoothly went straight to a career as an artist? Yeah. Or was there... I mean, there were roadblocks. The roadblocks were the teachers. It wasn't even so much that they didn't like it. They would give me bad marks. They would tell me to stop drawing silly stuff. You know, they just didn't get it. In high school, a few art teachers encouraged me to go into another direction. I was lucky. I had great parents and even a great sister who all three of them were like supportive of the art thing and thought I should pursue it. The thing also is that this isn't really a common thing, especially like in an Indian household. A lot of Indian families, you know, they encourage their children to uh, go into uh you know, things like, you know, maths and sciences and stuff like that. Right. It's like that first generation exactly. thing. But my dad was, you know, he would always tell me he was of the belief that I should do the thing I love, but work really hard at it. I was just kind of stuck on the first part. And then later on, when I entered art school after high school, the second part started resonating. <laughs> I realized the importance of like, yeah, actually there is this other hard part of, finding a visual voice, finding 
a style, a thing I want to say in my work, and then turning that into a vocation so I can make a living from it. So where did you go to school? There's a school here in uh, Toronto called the Ontario College of Art, and it's since uh, changed its name to uh, Ontario College of Art and Design University. <laughs> it's known as OCAD University. I'm also faculty there. I think that's where Nick DeGeneva went. That's right. Yeah, he did. And we had him on a little while ago. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, we're big fans. Yeah. So you went to OCAD. Again, did everything go smoothly at OCAD, or did you get in and they were like, stop drawing cartoons, or they like, draw more cartoons, or they were like, use yellow paper <laughs> instead? I was really lucky. I had amazing instructors that were encouraging. Every year I took a course in experimental painting, so I would couple my kind of commercial design and illustration education with a more kind of like abstract painting kind of education to sort of have that kind of counterbalance the abstract art teachers didn't like the fact that I was studying illustration and they thought it was a bad thing to do. Yet the illustration teachers thought it was a great idea to sort of expand my awareness and like, you know, do free kind of paintings. It was a little hard in the beginning for the first few years because I was just absolutely overwhelmed by the, the amount of immense talent around me. So that was really daunting from both the instructors and my fellow classmates, really, really good artists. And so, you know, I was a little bit kind of slow finding a voice. The things didn't really kick in until um, I was in my uh, final year of art school. It's always hard when you're in high school and you're the center of, like, the attention with art, and then you go to from high school to art school and everyone's good, and you're like, oh, no, I'm not special. Everyone's good. It's true. And then all of a sudden, it's like the constant adulation that you got from people just kind of stops because then there's a group of people who know better and it's not like they're not encouraging it's just that they have like greater awareness and they'll look at yourself and go, yeah this is really good however there's issues with the hands and the perspective and the color balance yeah yeah Ooh, that's a good point <laughs> you have a really distinctive style this sort of 50s illustration and retro look and it almost feels like you have the style, and then I put anything in front of you, and you'll it'll just materialize in that style. Like, it looks like, oh, of, of course, like, if I gave you a skunk, it would just magically, the right way to draw a skunk in that style would appear in your brain, and there it would be. Yeah. But of course, that's not true. Once you have a certain style, it's harder to draw certain things than it is to draw other things, because they're designed to work a certain way, and that's invisible. Is there anything that was uh, hard to draw in a Gary Texali way? Mm, that's a really good question. I never really thought of it that way. I would bend certain things to make them fit with my visual vocabulary. I guess you could almost in a way say that the thing has probably been like the biggest issue, which I just for the most part avoid, are portraits. And the few times I've done portraits, like Rolling Stone asked me to do a portrait of Adam Sandler one, and then they phoned me back like an hour later and said, ah, you know what, we changed our mind. Maybe we shouldn't have called you. And I said, well, I mean, here's a sketch I did of the guy, and you know, I want to like layer it with some elements and things from his movies and just some fun stuff. And they ended up really liking it and went for it. There was another time Entertainment Weekly asked me to do a, a portrait of Orson Welles, and that was really easy because <laughs> I draw a lot of fat guys with beards, so it ended up just looking <laughs> like them anyways. 
that stuff was fun. But if somebody asked me to do a portrait of Julia Roberts or something like that, you know, then I kind of, I don't know, I mean, it's not really what I do. I mean, with family, I, I essentially just did kind of like a realistic portrait. And then, you know, I just, and I screen printed it and, and then did the layers. So I made it work in that way. Yeah, it reminds me of the people in a comic book on those ads where there's like 20 different items mm-hmm. that they sell, like uh, the x-ray specs, you know, right. like the radio. It looks like, you know, they have like an operator standing by. Like <laughs> yeah. Adam Saylor looks kind of like the operator standing by <laughs> on that one. Uh, it's like clearly like from a photo, but it's kind of got those edges, which put it into that realm of illustration. It's kind of amazing when you look closely at these, like how many different styles are contained in what looks like one style in a certain sense. I mean, it's kind of the easy way to go with it. I think I did the same for a Volkswagen ad once. I just drew the car realistically and then turned it into a halftone and screen printed it and put other stuff on it. I'm like, "Ah, okay, that kind of works. It looks like me. <laughs> Halftone is always the answer, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know if this is like personal work or whether it's just illustration, but the thing that it was illustrating has been removed. But it seems like you looked at not just like the drawing style and like, you know, the way old prints look, but it also looked like you were looking at the tropes that old illustrations use to communicate things. Right. And then we're like, what if they communicated nothing? Like there's the one that's like, visit here today. And it's a big banner that says here. It's like, you would normally say, I don't know, like Maryland, visit Rhode Island. And it just says visit here. And it's like, there's no civic building. It's just a bunch of blocks. And it's like, what if you took this language and sort of directed it back at itself? Yeah, it's a fun thing to do. And and, and I actually really like that notion of just subverting the obvious and maybe like like drawing in kind of like like a digestible kind of manner where maybe like there's like a character or an icon that seems f- familiar somehow and then executing it in a lo-fi kind of way with the screen printing process yet subverting what the context of something like that may have been originally used for like a like a logo for a company like in the 1930s for example or an ad, or, or even as you just said, a postcard for you know a place like Maryland or something, and then just giving it a little bit of a slight turn so the viewer doesn't really expect that conclusion. So they're invited into the world, but like, hey, wait a sec, that's not really where I thought I would end up going. And I love doing that. When you first started, I assume it wasn't just easy to start Googling stuff. So what was your beginning of your library of uh, source material? The Google, I, I think I was like about nine years into my career before I even purchased a computer. But my library was, from an early age, was really just music, just like the visual stuff that I heard through the music. And that just kind of like made pictures kind of surface in my head. What kind of music? Uh, a lot of blues music, a lot of like 1930s stuff from like a long time ago where, where things just kind of felt like soundtracks for things. So there was just maybe like the, you know, the evoking of a mood or something. And, and I would just start kind of drawing in that way. But of course, I did keep a, a visual library of like artists and designers whose work I really liked. Film, I'm really, really always been like, you know, keen on film and just looking at movies. Mostly not even really animations, but just like live action stuff and just being enthralled by like the costumes and the scenes and just 
even just like I would like pause films and just kind of sketch some of the things characters would do in, in that kind of thing. What are some good films that floated you about? Anything by people like Stanley Kubrick, Roman Polanski, Kurosawa, a lot of like filmmakers who had like really great cinematography and you know visual awareness in their work. So like every frame had like really great stuff going on. Yeah. But even just kind of like accidental things, like just watching, you know, even stuff like the Little Rascals and you know Laurel and Hardy and things, just looking at it and just getting kind of like lost in that world is it's just like so much fun. The music is incredible too. I think I was born at a wrong time. <laughs> How did you first get into all the this retro stuff? Like, where did you discover it? The old music and the old movies, Laurel and Hardy and stuff. My dad would regularly take my sister and I to the library in the evening after dinner. He'd drop us off for a few hours, like several times a week. And that was so much fun. I go straight to, I don't know, the library. Where's the cartooning section? And I would find really just amazing books and just stuff there. And I think a lot of it, I mentioned earlier, my, my love of the Fleischer Brothers stemmed from finding books on those guys and just looking at that world and watching like Betty Boop cartoons and, and things like that. You know, yeah, I guess having um, also really amazing friends when I went to art school who knew really great stuff and learning you know, from those people, really great teachers who always like tell us about good happenings and and shows and things. Just being a sponge, really, and, and being fortunate enough to live in Toronto and have access to so many great things. It's way better to absorb these things when you're not just Googling, also when you're, when you're talking to people and getting books. It's true. In fact, I don't think you can really fall in love with pixels. Neil Young said something really interesting once. I think he was talking about the difference between like analog and digital. And he was saying, like, a record sounds different on everybody's turntable. Like, there's so many variances, in, you know, in that uh, technology versus digital. You're just talking about ones and zeros. And if you blow it up, it's just going to be a constant thing. It'll never change. But with analog, it's just like this huge vastness of gray. And the, and the nuances of those tones of gray are something that your ears pick up on. And that always stuck with me. And the reason why I like film so much, I don't have a TV, but I have a projection system. And when you look at something, when light is reflecting off an object, it bounces back into your eyes. I think it gets in your brain in a different kind of way. So when you look at an original painting or you look at something in a book or watch a film, it's a different experience than when you're like watching a television or looking at something on the computer. It just doesn't nest in the same way because i think there is kind of a sterile detachment of that thing well a lot of your work you put in these faux surfaces that look like a faded thing part of what that obviously does is it makes it seem to the audience it puts them in the headspace of like looking at an old thing and then they see the illustration it might take them out of it or make it more confusing but i'm interested about the beginning of it like you were clearly, you had your notebook and you're drawing these sort of Fleischer-y cartoons when you are a kid. Well, what point did you decide that mentally projecting the audience back into that place using those like techniques was the direction you wanted to go with it? Probably from an art teacher that said, who you really are is the person you were when you were a child and the things that you liked in your penchant for 
stuff that came out in your work, that the marks that you made before you were heavily influenced by other artists and designers that got into your head, that's really where you should look back to. And so <laughs> for me, the, the, the immediate response was, well, like I'm doodling and stuff, just like having the initial reaction to something and just making a mark on a piece of paper. And the great thing about old textbooks is that, you know how like you'd get a textbook and then somebody would doodle in it and then the next year, another kid would get it. And the next year, another kid would get it. And year after year, it just became like this amazing thing that different students had made their mark in. That's why the teachers were mad at you as <laughs> you were drawing in the textbooks. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that did not go over well at all. I know what you mean though, yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it, there's that kind of thing where it's like, this is just kind of the way I draw. So I would look back at my drawings when I was a little kid. I thought, yeah, you know, these are things I like. You know, I, I liked cartoons and I liked drawing like real character-based kinds of things in, in my stuff. And so I, I went through this phase after art school where I refused to draw with a pencil. And I thought that was dishonest because with a pencil, you can remove line and fix it and adjust it. Whereas if you draw with like a pen or a brush, whatever comes out is the thing. You have to stay married to it. So I purposely started making a series of pictures that way. And I would even do that in my illustration work. I would get assignments and whatever came out, came out. I would send the art director a sketch in a very loose kind of way, but there wasn't a heavy amount of like middle process of me sorting it out. I wanted to just be as spontaneous as possible. And I think that's really where like a true style emerges when you are like staying married to that initial mark. So you're in school, you're kind of just making these discoveries about where your passion is. What did you do when you got out of school? Were you immediately kind of moving into illustration or did you get a job working in Taco Bell? I was at working at Canada Post while I was a student. And, and that was like, I was like in the summertime, I would do the summer job and the, and the loading docks. And that really helped a lot. It was, it was a job that paid well. But while I was in school, I had some friends who were older, and this one friend said, hey, you know, you should promote your work in the summertime to art directors after my third year. Or I guess in the United States, you call them uh, junior year. And so I did that. Okay. By the time I was in my final year, senior year, I was working as an illustrator. As soon as I finished school, I moved to New York. It seemed like kind of the thing to do. And I remember the day I graduated, um, the post office phoned me for more summer work. And I told him, I said, no, please never call me again. I'm an artist. And, and the guy thought it felt really good. But a week later, I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. You were eating ramen. Yeah, right. I'm like, oh, what did I do? I think even the guy <laughs> on the phone was like, you know, you have a really good gig here. Why would you say no to this? All right, you're gone. We'll never call you again. I think I was doing all the cocky, too. I did this uh, billboard for Levi's and... It paid pretty good. I was right out of school. I was right out of school, and I used that money to move to New York, and I thought, okay, things are going to be great. I'm going to be working as an illustrator. I mean, I got a wake-up call. Things were really tough, but at the same time, I kept reminding myself, like, okay, you know, I, I have something here. I'm just going to keep at it and keep promoting myself, and, and I haven't done anything since then for an income other than teach, which I just, in a way, I see as an accompaniment to what I do. And so I lived in New York for a year, and that was really great. Living there um, helped a lot because I met these East Village artists. One of them was a guy named Tom Korn, who was an older guy, and he uh, 
would curate all these really great shows and, and he would tell me stories about how he would hang out with Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring and wonderful artists like that. So he kind of prompted me to show in galleries. And I, I mean, the first conversation I had with the guys was, I, I'm not an artist, <laughs> I'm an illustrator. And he just looked at me I, like I was nuts and said, it's all the same. <laughs> and so I started doing that. And every week since I met Tom, I've been doing personal work. And, and that just kind of grew and grew. And that became an accompaniment to my illustration career and eventually got me into galleries by, by doing uh, personal work all the time. That's cool. So when you first started out, you got your job with at Levi's. Was that just like submitting like randomly? Well, I didn't submit anything to that agency, but I was submitting things to like the awards annuals. So I was getting accepted into some of these places where they have like these like annual things or like, okay, you know, here are like people have won awards in illustration and stuff like that. And I guess like art directors were, were looking at it. And so winning a few of those things got me some phone calls. You said you were in New York for a year. So did you move in and then get some stuff done and then move out again? Yeah, like I thought I was going to live there for the rest of my life, to be honest. And then a year later, my father passed away. And I thought, okay, well, I'll come back to Toronto, stay here for a little while and go back to New York. And then I came back to Toronto. I just ended up staying. At the time, too, like New York was like this amazing, far away, magical place. But when I came back and I just kept doing stuff... You got over it. Well, (laughs) my career started becoming better. And then it was easier to just kind of jump on a plane and go and visit friends. And so I thought, okay, you know, before I'd have to take a bus and stuff. I thought, okay, well, you know, I can go whenever I want. And I started really appreciating Toronto. and, And I have ever since. I wanted to ask about like some of the stuff that you do. There's this one where it's like a screen print of two guys it's the same head twice one's red and then one's blue and it's an indian guy on the left with no mustache and red it says good husband and on the right it's got a mustache and it's blue and it says good lover <laughs> but otherwise they're identical yeah. can you walk us through like the genesis of like a piece like that one of my favorite artists is andy warhol and you know warhol would do as we all know portraits of real people I like to do portraits of people that don't exist. Like that thing where it hears somebody, but it's actually not anybody in reality. And I also like tongue in cheek kind of humor. So the idea to a point and a counterpoint, or maybe there's a thing in an image and then it's not really what you would expect it to be because it becomes something else or there's something in there that's something else. Yeah. I just have like these like, silly thoughts like you know maybe it would be kind of funny to like have the exact same person with a such a small change to that person is and then how that person looks at themselves is different so it's more really about i guess the character who i guess in a way sees himself as as a person who's responsible he's a good marriage partner but the mustache makes him feel sexy it makes him feel kind of like alive in a way and now he's like marking himself like as more than just a good husband. He's also this other thing. Stuff like that cracks me up. Uh-huh. I thought you were gonna reference another piece I did where I did almost like the same thing, but I did it with um an Indian guy also who has a turban. It says Superman and Clark Kent, and the only difference is it's 
there's glasses and no glasses. But I just basically turned right. Superman into an Indian guy. <laughs> and again, I like doing things like that too because it's not even just an Indian superhero. He's just like an average-looking guy. He's just a guy with glasses. He's, he, he doesn't even look like young or particularly athletic. He's just a person. And I love doing things like that. But the, oh, and the guy with the line you're talking about, again, it harkens back to um, drawing pictures of people and, and how they see themselves. So it's like you're not just looking at them. You're looking at a portrait of them sort of talking to you in a way, saying, here's who I am and this is how I feel. And so the piece you're referencing is a guy named Vikram, another Indian guy, and next to him is a falling lion because Vikram sees himself as... I guess this metaphor of strength, but falling strength. Well, there's always like built into the, just the very way you draw and the way that you present your drawings. There's a layer of irony because the style comes from a, I mean, I don't want to simplify it down to say a more innocent time, but it was a time when the art directors of the world were fairly confident that they could tell someone something like, hey, Standard Oil is friendly <laughs> and likes you and would expect the consumer to be like, Standard Oil is is friendly and yeah. likes me. Like whether anyone believed it, that was like an acceptable way to communicate with people. It's true. And your stuff, my imagine is that you just liked these images. And then when you came to art school and then also the job of commercial illustration, you almost had to face a fact that what you want, like the audience could only exist in an ironic relationship to that kind of way of presenting things like standard oil likes you. And so you had to develop a sort of way of talking to them that was about the difference between expectation and reality. Like that was almost built into the way you draw. That, that's that's really great that you pick up on that, and, and you're and you're absolutely right, Zach. Stuff from that time is amazing because all those companies had a logo in the form of a cartoon character. It didn't matter what kind of company it was, what they were selling, what kind of obscure like auto part. And we know like the big ones, like the oil companies and stuff. But everybody practically did it. And this was at a time before we went to the moon so there was kind of like a hope about the future there was maybe in a way like an idealism you know coupled with a degree of naivety about you know who we are as people and i think corporations weren't as bad as they are now and maybe shared some of that hope about things and i think at a certain point like you know i always did want to kind of hold on to that maybe that's my own nostalgia but i think the reason why uh maybe people liked it or art directors, even collectors is because I think we all have that thing in us where we do long for, I mean, you could call it simpler times for maybe like something that's kind of familiar or something that reminds us of our youth or innocence before things got really screwed up in the world like they are today. But you still seem to be also interested in the subversion. Like you said that mm -hmm. early on, that you're interested in taking that language and doing something weird with it. So it seems like you have a kind of a complicated Right. Yeah, it's definitely not literal. You know, there is kind of like, like a cynicism in the way I'll, I will kind of do that stuff where I don't think, it, like you're absolutely right, it didn't exist at that time. Like my work is, like I don't see it in any way as like something that's trying to be something from the past. I'm a person who's alive now, and I think I reflect the themes and the times of now because 
that's really all I know. Aesthetically speaking, there's like that stuff from a long time ago that's in me, and and I think in all of us, really. How can one really not make those kinds of ironic commentaries? I mean, things are just so like out of control in so many ways with like with corporations and with politicians and so forth that one does need to kind of make statements about the absolute contradictions of humankind that we all live with. How do you go about like inventing you have certain recurring characters which are very originally conceived like they are in this sort of retro style but the physical form is original there's that like salami thing with legs <laughs> yeah it's all red it looks like a piece of salami with legs and it's been cut and then there's a face on there like do you just sit around and sketch and then you go oh let's turn that into something or did they originate in some other form for another reason I think it's a, it is a combination of just sitting around and just kind of drawing stuff like, oh, that looks like a fun thing. But some things are kind of like more relating to like maybe like a thing that happened. That little salami guy you're talking about, he's called Oh No. And I, I don't know what it was. I think I like saw somewhere, you know, maybe it was in Europe or something that well, actually was like salami or some kind of sausage. And no matter how you cut it, there was always like a face and there's like there's like infinite face in the salami so you just keep cutting it cutting it and so so i thought it would be fun to maybe draw a little character like that so it looks like he's been sliced but there's a face there maybe like that face is just kind of always there or at least i don't know if i pull that off but I, i was thinking about that when i drew that character so yeah a lot of it is just kind of stream of consciousness stuff like playing music i like in you know letting things happen i meditate and i believe that Ideas don't come from your mind. I think they come from someplace else. And then when you quiet the mind and you just kind of are in like a creative zone, like automatic pilot or something, things just happen. I want to ask you about the imperfections in some of your work. You know, when Warhol, or when his workers anyway, did a screen print and there would be blemishes. Like, oh, that's how it turned out. Or just in the old timey printing would be off. Do you just like print and hope that a happy accident will happen? Or are you just really studying, like, I'm going to put a blemish right here? How much is natural and how much is planned out? Uh, that's a really good question. It's uh, Sometimes it's really planned out, but with the screen printing process, it's always going to be an accident or a surprise to some degree. Sometimes it's an absolute disaster, and the blemishes and the idiosyncrasies and the old things and the misprinting is excessive, and it's just a disaster and have to start again but i like to have some degree of control i don't think one should have total control otherwise you know things do become contrived so i'll make really tight drawings and i'll you know control the composition and i'll have everything in place and then i'll just kind of hope for the best with certain colors that some colors don't like certain paper textures and they do different things on different papers so i am kind of keeping my fingers crossed but yeah, you're absolutely right that the idea of just kind of like maybe like a little blemish or something, a lot of times I just kind of, I mean, it's just there, it's happened. You know, sometimes maybe it's a little bit blemish-free. I'll go, eh, I just need something, so I'll just grab a sponge or something, and I'll hit it uh, in an area, or I'll just like peel off part of it or something, or just kind of scrape it around a little bit and just try different kinds of things with knives and stuff. But usually for the most part, with the process I use and with old paper or even if it's like on a piece of wood or steel sometimes which I'll do, you almost can't go wrong. 
because it's such a beautiful medium um, screen printing that it's it, it always delivers great results. Do you have a press at home? I do. I, I do different kinds of things. I work. Well, I have a studio. It's like my studio is my home. But I also work with screen printers as well. I do like rock posters and stuff. There's a few companies. I think in, oh, am I saying the name right? Uh, is it Altamita or Albita, California? Alameda. Alameda. Yeah, there's a place where they do um, amazing screen printing. And I've done some projects. They do like a lot of posters for like uh, rock shows and things. And I've worked with those guys a lot. They're not going to make mistakes. They've got like aluminum beds and like their squeegees are always sharpened. So like you have to like work on your wooden table at home for the happy accidents. <laughs> <laughs> but they but they also just, what I do is I'll sort it out where I'll give the files and stuff where things are kind of like messed a little bit and they just, you know, capture it well. In Toronto, I, you know, I work with people here too. I, I guess it depends if it's for like an, an illustration or for a, a commission or like a fine art show. When you get a commission, I'm thinking more earlier in your career, and you're thinking like, okay, they want this by this deadline, but you know that screen printing end up being part of your process. Do you go, well, let's draw it and see if I can get away with that, and then let's paint it and see if it works like that, and then if it doesn't work as a drawing or a painting, then I'll take it to the print shop, or do you just from the beginning budget in, oh, I imagine this is gonna be a print, that's how I'm gonna do it. Yeah, if it's a commission from a collector, most people are pretty specific about what they want and they'll reference things I've done. So I'll just go, okay, well, you know, I can do that. Those kinds of things that you just mentioned, they happen whenever I do a gallery show and it's for myself. And that's when I, I'll do a drawing and be like, wow, okay, I want to do something with this. Ah, do I, do I want to paint it? Do I want to screen print it? Or do I want to make it big? Do I want to make it small? Do I even want to like collage it? Where am I going to go with this thing? And a lot of that is just also kind of uh, rolling the dice and just hoping for the best. So when you first started out, was there like a zone of uncertainty? You're like, okay, my deadline is this day, but I don't know if I'm going to have it printed. That zone of uncertainty, I don't think ever goes away really for any artist. Nothing is either ever really done and nothing is either ever really like the way you want it. Everything that you see is just kind of like a person just doing the best they can with the means that they have. You just try and just hope that it works out. And then sometimes it's a success, other times it's not. I think every artist, when you have a show, you know, I mean, every artist will look at their work and go, okay, you know, some, some of these are pretty good and others are like, oh no, why did I do that? I mean, it is kind of like the fun part too because it keeps things exciting and it makes you kind of you know, want to rise to the occasion and not lazy and predictable. There's also a degree of confidence within that umbrella of uncertainty. And so I think there needs to be that healthy balance of like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm okay with it. On the toy stuff, like the monkey and the oh no toys, do they get in touch with you or are you like, you just always wanted to make a little toy. And so you sought out the vinyl toy companies. No, that sort of just fell on me. The way it happened was, I think like, yeah, in, in around like 2005, Frank Kozik, I guess he was like in talks, so he was like good friends with this guy named Tom Hazelmeyer, who runs Amphetamine Reptile, the punk rock label. And he also had a gallery at the time called Oxop. They were working on a project with a Hong Kong toy designer named Raymond Choi, and the company was called Toy2R. So they were taking Raymond's just like blank vinyl toys and they were doing paintings on them and they were just getting like their friends. And so Frank 
told Tom Hazelmeyer about me. And so Tom asked me to be in the show. There were 30 of us in this show. We all did like an original painting on one of these blank dolls. And the show was at Shepherd Ferry Studio, some Blood Little Projects in LA. I had no idea at the time how successful that show would be. It traveled the world and had a, an accompanying catalog. There's a lot of really great artists in that show, uh, along with Frank and the Clayton Brothers and Gary Baseman and Tim Biscup. Of course, Shepard did one too. And then after that, Raymond asked me to do a mass production little key doll, and that went over well. How do you do that? Like, how do you make the first doll? I, I just basically took the design that I did from the painting that I made on the on the figure. You give them a painting and then somebody else does the, the sculpt. No, so he had like a template. And so it was very specific because of the nature of how they print these vinyl figures. There has to be like a specific amount of color. So I just kind of mimicked that kind of look from that original painting and I just broke it down and maybe like six or eight colors or something and sent him the design. So in the template, he'd have like the front, the back, the side, the bottom, and I would just kind of do the design digitally and then send it to him. And then he mass produced it. And then at the time I thought, well, shucks, you know, maybe I can just do this myself. I made some phone calls. And I thought, yeah, okay, I, I can do this. So I did this monkey right. and the Whitney Museum find out about it. So they wanted an addition. So I did a colorway for them. They also asked me to do like a screen print to give to their donors. And so I did that Ono character and I put a little crown on it. It was like a little nod to Jean-Michel Basquiat because that was the first show I saw at the Whitney that I thought was amazing. And then from there, I turned that character into like a little bronze. I also did something with Kid Robot, a little mass production dunny. And that Ono character that was for the Whitney, I also made into a vinyl character as well. That's fun. That's a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's very geometric, so it's easy to turn into three-dimensional objects. Oh, sure. Right. I wanted to ask you about, you teach a class at an art school currently. Yes. What kind of assignments are you giving these kids today? I like to give them assignments that echo the real world. An assignment where somebody is asked to inject their personal opinion or their personal voice into the subject matter. So the thing can be relatively benign, like, you know, maybe I'll just give them a word or something, but it's what they do with it and how original they are with their idea that is the important part. But I also like to do fun things like give them an assignment, like pick a band or pick a musician that you absolutely hate, now do an album cover for that person. Oh, but it has man. to be amazing. And so, <laughs> so the fans of that band or that musician have to be convinced. I like to do fun stuff like that, where it's like, okay, well, it's an album cover, but ooh, music I hate. At first, the students are like, yeah, okay, this is going to be like silly fun. But if you're not convincing the audience that you're a fan of, I don't know. Um, Nickelback? Sure, Nickelback. Then you've failed. Did you ever <laughs> have that assignment? Yes, it's called having an illustration career. Sure, but um, <laughs> what was the band? It was a Christian rock band when I was starting out. I don't even remember their name. It was odd, but it's work though, right? And you do it and it wasn't anything I was just morally or you know ethically against or something. I mean, it's just like, I don't know anything about their music. It's not something I would listen to. It's not really particularly enjoyable, but you know, I did the best I could. They were really happy with it. That's what I need to do. Was you know, it like artist. in your style? Yes. So someone would pick this up and recognize, they'd be like, that's a Gary Taxali. 
for, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Torch of Flame or whatever, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you at the point now where you can refuse things, though? Can you be like, I hate that. I don't want to do it. I mean, I think anybody can refuse things at any time. But I like to give things a chance, too. Right? Like, there's things that will happen where, like with Amy Mann, it's like, whoa, I love your music. And I've always loved it. So this is an honor. Or like some garage punk stuff. Where it's like, oh, this is right up my alley. I have all your stuff. So like, let's do this. But, you know, if there's something I haven't heard of, all right, well, give it a chance. And why not? It also, I think, is important to be open-minded because you also learn a lot about yourself. Maybe you will become a fan of something at the very end. Maybe hate is kind of a strong word, but maybe there's something that just isn't really in your world. And you go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go. <laughs> I heard this thing and it always stuck with me. Norman Rockwell was asked to do, I think it was like a scotch ad or something, some illustrations, and he and he said no. And then a friend of his called him and said, you know, the agency really wants you. Why don't you do this and that? And I can't. I'm working for the Girl Scouts of America. And I just did lots of illustrations for them. And I don't think I should really just put a booze ad right now. And then his friend said, pays $15,000. And then Norman Rockwell said, uh, what's the guy's number? <laughs> like, I'll do it, right? <laughs> I mean, my point is at the end of the day, we're running a business and it's, it's, it is a job. And I mean, work is work, right? If you can make something good out of it, why not? <laughs> so what is an example of a project that you loved? It's not just like, oh, it was a good project and you're happy to be working on it, but something that, uh, it was an assignment from someone else, but it turned out to be something that was really creatively productive for you? I don't consider myself much of a sports fan, but this year I've been doing a lot of sports stuff and I just finished a bunch of pieces for the National Pastime Museum in California for their permanent collection. And I started falling in love with baseball. I went to a Blue Jays game against the Orioles a couple of weeks ago. And I've been keenly just watching the sport and, and doing work for that. I'm also going to be, um, I'm, I'm working on a, a bronze sculpture for them right now. That has been really fulfilling. And I mentioned Amy Mann doing that was just incredible. Um, so there's baseball things. It's like a lot of like uh, big mascots with big baseballs for heads. <laughs> Actually, I haven't done a mascot yet. I, I, I've been dealing more with the players right now. Oh, really? And the stuff they go through. Yeah, like the different uh, players, like, you know, like the batter and the, and the pitcher and then the outfielder and stuff, even the, and the umpire. So are these like explanatory illustrations? Like this is what a double is. No, I never do things like that. I always like to do things where it goes deeper and it's about the world of that person. And it started out where they asked me to do a piece on Casey, from the famous poem, Casey at the Bat. Oh, so man. I, it was so much fun. So I did this <laughs> picture of Casey, you know, just holding his head in shame and then clutching his bat and then I screen printed his entire body in red and I shifted it over it. So it looked like this kind of energy moving away from him, but like this sort of intense anger at himself. And that was really enjoyable. I also did another one for them where the umpire is looking at the home plate and then just sliding right into the home plate from one side is a hand. It's the runner's hand and then sliding from the other side is the catcher's hand with the mitt, and they're both touching the base at the same time, and the umpire's looking at them. You have no idea what the call is going to be, and there's just that quiet moment of what's he going to say, and that piece is called indecision, because you can't tell from looking at it, because 
in a lot of times, I mean, that's the sport. Boom, it just happens in instantaneous second, and that person has to make the call. Or I did one where there's outfielders about to make this catch, but you don't know if he's going to make the catch or not because the ball is kind of far enough away where it can just slip over him. And his face is in this screaming position of, Alec, I got to catch this thing. So I, I like to create pictures where there's a further story that's being evoked that you don't know where it's going to go, but you'll never know because it's just stuck in a moment of time. I can tell you're really into baseball now. <laughs> yeah, I am. Like, like watching the game, it's a newfound love. And, and you maybe it does go back to that thing I was saying earlier about take something and then do an album cover of that thing. And that's not your particular taste in music. But as an artist, we do those things. And you go, yeah, there's something really amazing about this world. I think you do have to decide if you're going to go the distance and do the work for that client, you have to really say, I got to be in love with this. Otherwise, you should just say no, because you're not going to do good work. And you have to get inside that subject. So what if a cigarette company wanted you to to do their their cigarettes? (laughs) Today, I would say no. But that actually did happen early in my career. R.J. Reynolds phoned me, um, their advertising agency, and said we're asking different artists to do artwork in their style for limited edition, like Camel Cigarettes. Would you be interested? I'm like, that sounds like fun. The focus groups ended up killing the campaign, and they ended up going for photographs of beautiful people or something instead. If they call me today, I'd say I'm not interested. Okay, that's an interesting question, though. When people don't want your work probably happened more in the past than it does these days. What would they say, you know, when they would send it back? Oh, it's too what? Oh, boy. Um, I, I was commissioned by Hardcore Brace to do a children's book, and I did a bunch of the sketches, and the, the publishing company was really happy with it. They showed the writer, and she called my work archetypically horrific, and that was the end of that. Wow. Uh, I mean, I ended up writing and illustrating my own kid's book and worked for a Scholastic, a different publisher, but that was one. There was a lifesavers thing where everybody was, you know, on board with me. Actually, don't you know this Christmas pack? Do you ever see those things? At Christmas time, the lifesavers put out the like a cool little Christmas packaging of the candy. Right. Anyway, yeah. so they asked me to do it, and I did it, and they thought it was kind of strange and creepy and scary. And, um, scary. They didn't end up using it. Yeah. Was there anything scary about it from your point of view at all? Or, like, was there anything that you would thought, oh, this is a little bit off, or was it just like? They didn't like the style. Well, maybe Santa was a little sardonic. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, maybe my stuff isn't exactly like mainstream digestible. I don't know. For that particular client, it wasn't at least. Mm. Oh, well. I mean, I never take things like that personally because at the end of the day, it's just an aesthetic thing. And there's so many artists who do all kinds of things that there's like room for everybody and one can't have it all, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm interested in like how the public interacts with this stuff because we see it in a certain way, but then it is illustration, which means it's being seen by millions of people who don't have any idea of the intentions behind it. They don't have any idea of the history behind it. Like I wonder, do people go, oh, it's kind of a retro thirties thing, but with an ironic twist, or do they just go, ah, it's a scary monkey. For the most part, I guess I don't really hear about it. Sometimes I do when the Royal Canadian Mint commissioned me to do designs for coins. I did six coins for them. And (laughs) 
that was uh, odd because when the coins came out, I think on some blogs and stuff, the greatest thing I read was, uh, money's not supposed to be funny. <laughs> and, and people were offended. Yeah, that is that. a really weird client to get. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I thought, man, this is this is like one of the greatest quotes I've read about my work. <laughs> Money's not the real, really funny. subversive. We made money funny. <laughs> I mean, you must have felt good about that. Yes. There were other comments because, um, you know, it's Canada, and you know, with our money, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's the way it is. Uh, you know, with our quarters, every single Canadian quarter has to have the Queen's head on the tail side, and it has to be proved by Buckingham Palace. And so Buckingham Palace gets the coin designs and they green light it or not. And, and so some people, I guess, who are like monarchists or whatever, they just saw it as like an insult to... What, did you, you what was your design for the coin? So they, they gave me uh, um, themes, like lifestyle themes. So they said, okay, you know, um, you have birthday, you have tooth fairy, you have new baby, you have a wedding, you have uh, Canada, and it was a holiday one. Oh, so like and, people would buy uh, them commemoratively, and they would give them to people on these holidays. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, exactly. They weren't mass production coins. I mean, they made a lot of them. I think they made like a hundred thousand or something. But uh, they they were just out for the year two thousand and twelve, and and so each coin, I I did the typography on it, and they and they have my initials on it. So they marketed them as Gary Texali coins. So there was there was a nice kind of like. Um, uh, thing where they're like, okay, you know, here's like, you know, this contemporary Canadian artist has done these coins and it's this thing. And, you know, it's, there's like celebration coins. We've, you know, next year we'll do something else. So it was kind of awesome in that they let me do things like for the O Canada one, um, one or two of the uh, Maple Leafs had their tongue sticking out. And the vice president of, of the Royal Canadian Mint asked me about that. He said, "Because yeah, you know, at first we were like, why would why is why is the tongue sticking out?" And then we looked up your work. He goes, "Oh, Gary does this all the time in his work, so just leave it alone." <laughs> and so, okay, that's pretty amazing that they would be you know that progressive. Um, um, I was really proud of the um, the wedding coin because I I did uh, in Canada um, same sex marriage is is legal as it should be and so i did uh two um androgynous um little rings that you, you know they're not identifiable by their gender and they're sort of entwined and well they're in, circles in yeah people, they don't really have a gender yeah, <laughs> exactly and a lot of people like like that and um uh, sex clothes dan savage called it canada's gay coin and i was happy about that that's cute that's great it was a really fun project. They they gave me a lot of creative freedom, um, and and it, and it's amazing because uh, the coins are are done so well. Like like they, they weren't done by computer or anything. I did the designs, and I, had, I would have to indicate the levels on them. And I worked with one of the senior engravers, so there was like a lot of like back and forth with like um, sketches and things. And and they actually like they engrave the thing, and they have like the little steel thing, and they use that. And they and they make the coins from it. It's very like old school. It's, it's a really beautiful art form. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds like a super fun project. Is there anything else like that that's like just you wouldn't have expected to get that call? Well, working with Amy, 
man, and her sending me her music and basically saying, here's my music. I want to know what you think about it visually. So let's have a dialogue. And, and then having that kind of connection to her music through like my artistic interpretation was one of like the greatest projects I ever worked on. Her and I ended up becoming really great pals after that and working together on other stuff like posters for, for shows she would do. We ended up getting nominated for a Grammy for the art, but we lost to um, a band that I don't know, like nobody's ever heard of called Radiohead. I haven't heard of them. Have you guys? They're like really obscure. <laughs> yeah, and... Not famous at all. <laughs> now, what Radiohead did was good, but... Really? Wait, they did something yeah, good? I, know, I'm just <laughs> I feel like we got to stop this whole interview. This is like the most shocking thing you've revealed is that Radiohead did something good. I was waiting for it, so. At, I mean, wait, it wasn't Creep. It was something good other than Creep. It's waiting for Zach to go off on Radiohead. I was watching a YouTube videos of you talking and you, you had a story about you were on a train in India and there was a woman who put her legs on you, an old woman. Yeah, yeah. Well, the part that I didn't get about that story is why did she put her legs on you in the first place? Well, see, in India, a lap is real estate, and it's a place to sit, for starters. So for anybody? For anybody. So a man will sit on another man's lap. I mean, we're talking about now, like, the coach section of the trains, right? So a lot of people in India, you know, travel in that way will experience that. I wasn't taking first class or anything like that. What'll also happen is like that lap was like you know, a place to like for an old person to like take off her shoes and like rest her feet. And the sense of space that we have here in the West doesn't exist in a lot of places in the world, especially like in India where you are in remote places. And I mean I was not taking a train in New Delhi or something or Bombay. Like this was pretty remote places, like the villages and stuff, right, where that kind of thing will happen. But yeah, it's pretty commonplace. I looked out the window. Uh, I don't know if I said this in the story, but there was a guy holding on to a train from the outside. And then there was another guy holding on to his waist, reading a newspaper. And I thought I was much better than those people. Like, if that guy lets go, they both fall off. I mean, that's what traveling in India is like sometimes. How fast is the train going? It's going as fast as a train. <laughs> people are like, they just live like that, right? And the people are sitting on top of the train. And the trains are packed. Oh, and this was really funny, right? Like, I want an air conditioned ticket, so I, I paid for air conditioning. But air conditioning was a joke. It was just a rusty fan bolted to the ceiling, blowing hot air in your face. <laughs> and they just called it AC, right? Close enough. <laughs> That's really funny. But you didn't, you didn't know at the time. I, I teach kids, and one thing teachers always yell at kids about if like, they get too close to each other, you'll hear a teacher say, personal space, personal space. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's funny to think about that. Yeah, it's true, right? And the thing which I've seen in a lot of Asian countries is that there's an immense amount of traffic and chaos and people are, get shocked when they travel from the West and they go, they're like, oh my God, they don't respect the lanes or the, like, the signals and the, the traffic is nuts. I'm like, yeah, but if you notice one thing, they don't have road rage like we do in the West. Like, people aren't as quick to anger. Whereas over here, we have greater personal space, yet, you know, there could be nobody in the road, but, like, if a car doesn't signal or goes very something, people just lose their shit. Yet, hmm. in Asia, I mean, obviously, humans are just nuts everywhere, but culturally speaking, it's not as prevalent like it is here in the West, road rage. I drive with my father, and he's immediately mad. I'm like, don't you know it's just going to take us a long time? He just can't accept it. 
What were you doing in India at the time? Vacationing or? I was vacationing. Yeah, this is the time I was just visiting family and just checking out the country. And I was there two years ago though for work. I was teaching at the National Institute of Design, doing a workshop in Bangalore, and that was a lot of fun. So, are you fluent in the language? I assume. No, not at all. I could speak a little bit of Hindi and Punjabi, but. I was in a part of India where they speak a, a language called uh, Kanata, and in South India, it sounds nothing like Hindi or Punjabi. They couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand them. I did better with English than I did so Hindi. It's just all visuals, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all visuals, and it's all food. <laughs> yeah, but there's some good food. Oh, yeah. I'm about to ask about what good Bollywood movies I should see. Have you seen all the classics? Have you seen the stuff from the early days, like Shole and things like that? No. Okay, so let's start <laughs> with the greatest Bollywood film of all time. Tell it's me. called Shole, and it's like an Indian spaghetti western. It's amazing. I love it already. And it stars a young Amita Bachchan, who I believe it was either one of his first roles or his very first like leading role. And it's a film that is just in the psyche of like every Indian because it was like so well done. The music is great, won so many awards. And the bad guy, the character's name is Gubber Singh, he like to a T like defined like the Bollywood bad guy, the template. He created that sort of character, the bar really of that character. So I, I recommend watching that film. It's really terrific. It, it came out, I think, in the mid 70s. I will definitely watch it. Is there singing and fighting? Everything. All that stuff. Yeah, there's lots of good fighting, lots of great songs. Did any of that have an influence on your art? Absolutely. In fact, I did a... Practically at every show, I'll do something where I'll have like, like a Bollywood character, but I was working on a series of Bollywood bad guys, but none of them are actual real bad guys. I mean, they're just all fake. Fake portraits of people that don't exist, but they would be bad guys in Bollywood films. What makes a Bollywood bad guy a Bollywood bad guy? The hair, for starters. (laughs) The fashion sensibility. They got their collar turned up or something? (laughs) There's just something about, like, also, like, the language. You know, when they speak Hindi, you know, the poetry of the language coupled with somebody who's just emphatically doing bad stuff, it just has, like, such amazing drama all over it. It's something I can't really describe because, like, I know what they're saying. It's almost like, oh, how could there be a greater bad guy in any other language? It's just, it's just maybe that. There's also just, like, the over-the-top drama because, like, Bollywood films, or at least, like, the way they used to be, very theatrical. So these films were appealing to the mass Indian audience. Right? This was, like, like, a high form and only form of entertainment. So they would have the singing and the dancing and the fighting and the drama. You know, a lot of it is over the top, almost like, you know, like soap operas in a way too, with like the over the top music Mm -hmm. and the over the top acting too. I just like how when they're singing and dancing, they're all smiling. You don't see that in American things. Like they just get this big smile on their face. I love it. Yeah. I did want to ask about the smiling because when you were saying earlier how every corporation had a cartoon logo, back in the 50s. I remember reading something very recent about Japan where every single company, no matter what they make, has a logo. So like the military has like a happy cartoon 
plane, you know, and they'll put like on their warplanes, although it's Japan, so they're not ever, have never been used for any war. The, The modern military kind of exists in this quantum state there, but they have like a big cartoony face on it. And I was wondering if you saw like a parallel between I don't know if this is true in India with the optimism of of a lot of the public culture, but it's definitely true in Japan. And the illustration era that you draw on, like that universal cartoonability and optimism. Interesting. Yeah, I do. But a lot of what I grew up looking at in India, and maybe just because it's just India in general, was just leftover colonialism. So like, there's this kind of stuff where a combination of the past and then a combination of stuff that the the British infused, you know, within the culture. And that's like through the education system. And that's even through the languaging, uh, like the way people even like, you know, speak and, and just even like the, the, the way things are just kind of done, you know, maybe just in terms of like the products, seeing a lot of like, like just being fascinated by like, like as you were talking about, like the characters and things, advertising and graphics and so forth, you know, maybe there was like that degree of like that Western kind of marketing, but done in an Indian way, you know, it's got to have come from colonialism to a degree because, well, first of all, I mean, you know, India always in one degree or another has been like the victim of invaders. The Mughals are there for 500 years. They built the Taj Mahal and stuff. So a lot of India has always just been attacked from the left, the right, the top, the bottom, everybody, the Portuguese, the Dutch, everybody's had something there. But anyways, I am recalling like being um, inspired by some like Indian versions of comics. And I remember the one that was like a Laurel and Hardy one, but it was done kind of in an Indian style and I'm still trying to find it. I only remember seeing it as a kid when I was in India. <laughs> and yeah, you know, that smiling, that optimism was prevalent. Did India have, was the illustration style there similar? Because I've definitely seen uh, Indian illustrations that are definitely unusual, Yeah, you know, by Western standards. I didn't like anything I saw, to be honest. At the time, I just, I thought a lot of it looked like really bizarre tracings of stuff that was existing elsewhere in the world. There was not really like a strong footing of like what people wanted to say. So I don't think that really happened until later. I mean, maybe it was happening. I just wasn't seeing it. The stuff I saw, just it, it did look kind of badly drawn. But there was like beauty in the naivety of the drawing. But then again, this was stuff that was like really mimicking like Western culture stuff. And so I was really fascinated more by that than I was like Indian folk art. If we want to talk about that, I mean, that stuff is like centuries old. That stuff, I mean, you know, there's sculptures like 5,000, 7,000 years. Not about that at all. I'm talking, you know, we're we're all on the same page, right? About the corporate characters and things like that. But it's the copying is itself interesting because it's, in a way, your work, it's kind of like, what if this was copied by someone who didn't have any connection to the original idea that it's supposed to express? Your work has a certain copied quality. Like, it's like... When something gets copied into a context where it doesn't belong. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're saying here. I like, to, I mean, like, think of it as like, you know, there's like a mass produced kind of thing that's going on. And with mass production, that there is going to be like things that become almost ubiquitous because here's the thing, let's just use it for this other thing and this other thing. And who cares about the printing? Nobody will ever notice or care. 
and let's put it in this context of that, and let's rip a bit of the page, and let's add this other character, and let's just kind of do it over and over and over again. I kind of speed up that thing because instead of me taking something that looks like it from a long time ago, I mean, I mimic that kind of experience, but I do it with my own character. So it looks kind of like, you know, to the viewer, like, oh, is this something I've seen? No, nobody's ever seen it before unless they've seen that picture before because it hasn't existed before. I mean, there are my own characters. It's original in that sense. But the aesthetic is so strong that it looks familiar. Right, yeah, that, I yeah. think that's, it's that. It's like an echo of something. Yeah, it was really great talking to you guys. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. Yeah, anytime at all. It was really wonderful speaking with you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Gary Taxali. At his website, taxali.com, where you can find his work, his upcoming announcements, and you can buy some of his stuff. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, we have a Patreon. Please consider becoming a patron. Then you will be one of our supporters with your donations. You'll get exclusive episodes, t-shirts, stickers, all sorts of great things. Go to patreon.com backslash Weed Art. Weed Art is produced by Papang and Mnemonic Recordings. The engineer, sound producer, and editor is just an action. With editing help this week from Colin Wamsgans. When you were in New York, did you ever go to that taxi stand in Houston in the East Village that has Indian food? No. The reason I think it must be good is because all the Indian people in taxis would go there. Oh, yeah. One Indian to two cab drivers, and they're not going to spend a lot of money, so they're getting, like, a good meal for a reasonable price. I'd definitely go there. Next time you're in New York, it's on Houston, and it's just a counter. There's no place to sit, and so the taxis just pull up to sit outside on the sidewalk and eat it. Yeah, it's a good summer night. Once we're just talking about Indian food? Yeah, Indian street food. <laughs> That's a different podcast. <laughs> It's all right. We can go on a tangent. <laughs> it's important. Actually, Justin's just 